Our good friends at Johnny O welcome you to this episode. And if you've listened to Rich Take on Sports, then you know two things are important. Sharing the impact of sports in people's lives and the Johnny O clothing brand, blending those East Coast classic styles with a SoCal vibe. I've been wearing Johnny O for several years, and now you can as well with 20% off your first order by using the promo code ARICHTAKE at johnny-o.com. Live your best life with the Johnny O style and use promo code ARICHTAKE at johnny-o.com for 20% off your first order. Exploring the impact of sports. Welcome Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Having conversations and hearing personal stories from those who have been impacted, built, and inspired by the role of sports in their lives. Here's your host, Richmond Weaver. This is episode 148. Thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen. Sometimes the simplest things in life can also be the spark that can create change and transformation. For Damon West, a former Division I college quarterback, sentenced to life in prison, his transformation is based on something that we wouldn't even think about twice in our daily lives, a coffee bean. The profound message about the coffee bean that Damon heard while in the county jail before he would begin serving his life sentence in a Texas maximum security prison would allow him to ultimately change his trajectory, not only in prison, but also in his life. Damon would be paroled after serving seven years of his life sentence, and his quest of spreading the message of the coffee bean would continue as he would become an author of his first book and autobiography, The Change Agent. And then he would partner with best-selling author John Gordon to publish the book, The Coffee Bean, A Simple Lesson to Create Positive Change which would become a bestseller, and there's even a kid's version now. You'll also find him teaching about the prison system in America as a professor at the University of Houston, while he continues to spread that positive message as a keynote speaker, working with organizations and teams like Clemson, Alabama, Florida State, Tennessee, Arkansas, Miami, and more. And what is that coffee bean message? Well, we'll let Damon tell you. Our conversation with Damon West. Damon, thanks so much for joining me here on the Rich Take on Sports podcast. I greatly appreciate it. And just your story, are are there times right now, just in the mornings, you're looking in the mirror and like, oh my gosh, is this really real? How my life has been evolving, changing, you know, everything. I mean, it's just a crazy story. We're going to dive into it, but there's got to be times you're just like, I don't even believe this is real. Every day. And we'll talk about all the details of it, but I've got a lot of perspective on what a bad day looks like, Rich. So Every day that I wake up and my feet don't hit the cold concrete floor of a prison cell, I'm winning. You know, I'm winning. And so I know what a bad day looks like. And and honestly, man, I haven't seen bad days like that since I've been out of prison because that's waking up in a dungeon every day in a maximum security prison, not knowing, you know, it's a dangerous place, first of all, but just not knowing when that's going to end. That's a whole different kind of, of oppression than what you're dealing with even with the coronavirus, you know, the coronavirus is tough. I mean, it, it's been tough, and but it wasn't something like going to prison. It was the ultimate training ground to come out on the other side and be able to show other people how to do this, you know, because you can't deny what you can see. But yeah, I mean, I, every day, man, I'm like, wow, I just cannot believe this is my life. But um, I'm grateful that it's happened to me. I really am. Well, again, as we talked about briefly, you look great in your mean green gear. So, <laughs> yeah, it's it's a great day to represent your alma mater. And I want to go get into that type of details, just getting to North Texas. But before that, even going back a, a little bit uh, earlier, growing up in the West household, what was that like and some of your earliest memories of actually getting into sports and realizing that, hey, I think I'm a good football player? You know, what's interesting about it, so my, my household, I'll, I'll take that part of the question first. My house, Growing up in the West, I, my dad was a sports writer for 50 years, and he was very progressive. He came from Missouri, so he wasn't from Texas originally. He met my mother in college when they were at Lamar University. Uh, my mom was a cheerleader. My dad played golf there. 
and he was a sports writer for this college newspaper. But he became a sports editor in Port Arthur, and he got the job in 1971 as the editor, up from being a sports writer because they just let the other editor go because the publisher of the paper, a guy named Bill Maddox, who went on to become my godfather when I was born in 1975, Bill came to my father in 71 and said, hey, it looks like you can be the new sports editor now that the other one's been let go because here's the deal. The best running back in the entire country is in Port Arthur, but he's black. And the rules say that a black guy can't be on the front page of the sports page but he said, I'm saying right now as the publisher of this paper, the rules have changed. Are you willing to do this? And my dad was like, yeah, I mean, if he's the best athlete, you know, we'll put him on the front page. And, and my godfather even told him, you know, Bill said, look, everything, you know, white, you know, a lot of what you know that it's white right now is going to change for you tomorrow when you run this story. And my dad was you know, like, oh, look, I'm all in. Let's do the, let's do what the right thing is. And, and Bill had worked previously in. And he was a press secretary of Washington. I think he worked in the Lyndon Johnson administration during the Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act stuff. So they did it. I mean, he, the, the, the football player was a guy named Joe Washington. And Joe Washington was a, a legendary uh, college player. First of all, he was an All-American high school, All-American college player. Went on to play for the uh, Washington Redskins, Baltimore Colts back then. But when my father did that, people lost their minds down here. I mean, they broke his windows out. They slid his tires. They sent him a bunch of hate mail. My mom was teaching at, a, at an all-white school, uh, private school. She she left there to become a teacher at one of the black campuses in Beaumont. It's all black school. She was one of three white teachers, you know, 2,500 students, three white teachers. She's one of them. But they went all in on the civil rights thing because it was the right thing to do. And it was a time that that was demanding white people to get out there and, and get involved like that. And they did. They used their... They use their currency and they spin it well. And they, that was a very valuable lesson that I learned back then. Uh, so when a lot of the white families were moving out of Port Arthur in the 70s and 80s, my parents dug in their heels and stayed. They wanted their kids to go to integrated schools. And, and we did. I was always one of the only white kids at slumber parties, birthday parties, sports teams, you name it. But I grew up in a giant melting pot of a city. And look, playing sports, I, I was never good in sports until I was about 11 years old. And this baseball coach named Coach Bass got a hold of John Bass. Uh, got a hold of me. He just saw something in me. I don't know how he saw this either. How do coaches see that potential in a player? But he started working with me and I was receptive to it and I was hungry. I wanted to be a, a somebody that was picked before second to last pick every time everybody played a game. And that's where I was. I was never one of the first kids picked. Yeah. And so he started working on me throwing and, you know, then I found out I had an arm and then I started playing football in, in junior high. And then in high school, I began, you know, I was a three-year starter, then got a scholarship to play ball play quarterback at the University of North Texas. I mean, you know, I went from 11 years old being one of the last kids picked to starting for a Division One college football team at 20. So, yeah, it was, a, it was a heck of a ride. Oh, it definitely was. And, you know, going back to just even the aspect of what your dad had to endure and your mom and even, I guess, the West – family because of you know putting Joe Washington on the the cover of the sports page there and you talked about some valuable lessons that you learned but what did you pick up seeing how your dad reacted to those type of threats to the family and what that meant to you later in life how it developed you in your childhood but also how it affected your adulthood yeah, you know, my dad, and he's still alive. My parents are still, and this is the thing about this story, Rich, is that I, mean, I didn't come from a broken home. Hell, my parents have been married 52 years, going on 53 now. And so, but I will tell you this about my father. My father is a man of integrity, man of his word, um, hard worker. You know, these are these are adjectives you don't hear all the time anymore when you, you look at me. He was one of those guys that went to work for the same place for 40 years and retired, you know, but my father taught me a lot of lessons in life about being an honorable person, being a, a person of good moral character. And, and look, all those lessons didn't exactly take on me. I'll be the first to admit I wasn't a, a person of good character growing up. I got into substance abuse at a really young age. But, but watching how my father would handle stuff, uh, he's very calm, very relaxed. He doesn't get excited about you know, things that happen. You know, he, he's not easily agitated. And, and in a lot of ways, I'm very different than my father with that. But he, um, you know, he, he instilled so many good lessons. My mom did, too. You know, I, I came from a, a great group. Of, I can't say it enough. I mean, I came from great people 
the the upbringing of Port Arthur was was key though to this story, Rich, because I grew up in that giant melting pot of a city, and my father's name. Here's the interesting part: when we get to the prison stuff, my father's name carried on and, and helped me inside of that prison because of the stance that he took with putting black athletes on the front page of the sports page. He became kind of like a great white hope, and that's what they would call him down here for athletes. Over Southeast Asia, we give them all this ink. And then now all the colleges are paying attention to these athletes who can send stories of them to the newspaper, you know. So when I got to prison, jumping ahead a little bit, when I got to prison, and prison was tough. You read the book. Yes. It was very hard. There were guards there. I'm going to – I'm in prison in the town right next to where I grew up. I'm in prison in Beaumont. I grew up in Port Arthur, neighboring towns. And there were guards there that were older guards, older black guards that said, hey, look, you know, they pulled me aside. Hey, are you Bob West's son? Yeah, you know, and I'm almost embarrassed because here I am in prison and my dad is this upstanding guy. And they smile and they say, hey, listen, it's the same conversation every time, Rich. Hey, your dad has done so much for us black folks in the black community, man. If you have a problem, you need anything at all, you let me know. I got your back. This is a guard telling yes. me anything, man. <laughs> hey, I've got your back. That can't be normal, right? No, it's not, <laughs> it, it's not normal. And, and you take, we jumped right in and talked about race, which is great, man. I love talking about this because not enough people do. But the dynamic in prison is that prison is all about race, man. A race divides everything, man. And you're, you're expected to be with your own race. But for a black correctional officer to tell a white inmate, hey, I've got your back. I mean, it's just, it's unheard of. I mean, so much to the point that, you know, and it's how I carried myself growing up too. There were there were correctional officers that I was locked up with that that played ball with me or were, you know, close to the same age and grew up in the same town. One of them was a lieutenant there. And I mean, he's like, hey, man, look, man, my cousin grew up with you. His cousin Omar grew up with me. And he said, I used to idolize you as a kid. He said, man, I I'll help you out while you're in here, man. If you need something, let me know. So every day, every time that we would run commissary, which is every two weeks, the commissary is like where you go in there to, to it's like a store they have on the unit. It's like a, a canteen, the store where you get to buy food and stamps and envelopes and coffee and stuff like that. And it's hard as hell to get in line, Rich. Oh, it's so <laughs> commissary is such a chaotic nightmare. But this lieutenant, Lieutenant Raymond, and Lieutenant Raymond would come grab me. About 30 minutes before they would let us out of our cells, he'd come in there and say, hey, Wes, let's go to commissary. And I mean, the entire pod would just be waiting by the doors and he's rolling my door. And I mean, people are screaming, man, why are you letting the white boy out? Why are you letting the white boy out? You know, but but it's going back to how I was raised, man. I was raised by good people who raised me in a giant melting pot of a city. And they taught me these great morals and lessons. They stuck with me for the rest of my life. And I tell people all the time that Port Arthur is so key to my survival inside that prison and it's in survival in life, too. And so why was commissary so chaotic, though? Why was it so crazy? Everybody wants to get there. Everybody wants to go to commissary. Everybody wants to go to commissary because that's when you get a little bit of the free world. That's where you get if you're into chips and cookies and donuts and pastries and all that other stuff. And that's where you go get it. man. Otherwise, it's it's prison food, you know. That's where you get something different. That's where you get a taste of the free world. And everybody wants to get down there and they they run out. They always run out of stuff. So if you're not in that line early, they're going to run out. And look, man, you're a white guy in prison. It's tough to get in that line. It, I mean, that's just the realities of it. I don't like I said, we could talk about race all day long. I've got this tremendous currency from being in prison. And, and where my backstory is, I talk about race every room I go into. Black athletes, white athletes. I tell you know everybody at the end of the presentation, if you're white, do this. If you're black, you need to do this. But the race thing is real in America. And you go into an American prison, everything's about race. You try to get in that line as a white guy you know, in prison, man, it's tough. I, there's a lot of fights that happen trying to get in that commissary line. It, is, it's a, it can be a very dangerous thing. Oh, I can only imagine. And uh, it's just amazing that you have experienced that and now where you are now. And- Going back to your childhood, though, and I know your story and when you were nine or 10 years old and sexually molested. And was that truly the tipping point that really kind of started the road that you went down? Or were there other things in your childhood that you were just a little rebellious as your nature was? So was it a combination or was it truly that one event that just started? The yeah. domino effect, so to speak. So, Rich, when I, when I talk about this stuff, I always want to point out to people that 
the molestation thing is not the catalyst event for my life like it is for so many other people that are molested. I think a lot of other people, they get molested at that age, men and women both, that it's more traumatic in the sense that it's, it's like a violation. Mine was not like a violation in my mind. My, the, the problem with the molestation thing and what it did is it opened up my eyes to adult behaviors. You know, now at nine years old, you're introduced to this world of sex. And, and the, well, now that I'm introduced to sex and sexual things, I mean, what else is out there? So now you're on the other side of this big door that's got all these other doors that are just flung wide open. And, and I like the way it feels, too. I like, you know, the molestation stuff. I like the way that felt. You know, it was a female babysitter. It opened me up to something that a nine-year-old doesn't need to be opened up to. And all of a sudden, you know, I've got this, this key to this world that none of my other friends have. You know, I'm in on this big secret, and I want to get back to that. It, so now all of a sudden, you know, hanging out with a little girl and, and maybe holding her hand or just kissing her on the cheek, that's not going to do it, man. I mean, anybody listening knows what I'm talking You've gone to the other side, man. I mean, it's, so it's at nine years old, you're not equipped to handle that mentally and emotionally. So that's what happened to me. I mean, it opened up a new world of adult behaviors and I liked it. So that was a, that's the, when the, the drinking started, you know, uh, you know, I, at nine, I get, you know, into the, I get molested and then at 10, you know, I start grabbing my dad's beers. I see my dad drinking them and, and I started sneaking them out of the fridge. I like the way that feels. And my mom smoked cigarettes back then. I would steal her cigarettes and smoke them. They're adults. I'm doing adult things. And by the time I'm 12, I'm smoking pot. And to me, that's just normal. The worst part though, Rich is I've got a bad belief system and bad belief systems and they're a bad belief system tells you how to do something the wrong way over and over again. And the longer we hold on to a bad belief system, the harder it is to get rid of. And here's the truth about belief systems is they usually went out in the end. They're very hard to change. And my, my bad belief system at 10 and 12 years old was, Hey, all I'm doing is drink a little beer, smoke a little pot. I'm not hurting anybody. I'm not even hurting myself. And, and when I go in these rooms and speak about that, you know, you can see the nodding and understanding coming from a lot of these athletes and even adults is like, yeah, you know, they, they may have had that belief system at one point there, or they may know someone that does have that belief system, but rarely do you find it in someone at 10 or 12. And now fast forwarding as you're progressing, being recruited and, you know, to play college football, was there an aspect that it was almost that, okay, I'll go to college and, I can break away from what I've been doing or was it, Hey, now this is, I just get to do it on a bigger stage in terms of the party and, and all of that. Yeah. The, the latter, man, the latter, man. I, when I got to college, man, the wheels are off, right? The wheels are off the wagon. I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm all over the place and all I really care about is being the starting quarterback and partying. And I'm in a fraternity, I'm a Lambda Chi Alpha fraternity. Uh, in the look, man, that's really what my life is about. I, I'm, I'm kind of a jerk. I'm not kind of, I am a jerk. I'm real cocky, real arrogant. I'm, you know, I'm a starting quarterback. I'm in a fraternity. You can imagine what it was like to run into me on campus, man. I mean, I'm just like, Oh, Hey, that's a, hey, being a quarterback and in a fraternity. <laughs> that's a recipe for ego, right? Oh yeah. And, and I'm the stereotype, stereotype of what you see about it, man. I'm, you know, and I'm not, I'm not terrible. I mean, I don't, it's not like I'm, I'm without morals entirely. I'll give you, I'll give you a story, man. This is a story. It's not even, in the book, and I rarely tell, but it's, you know, they're doing a movie about my life with Lionsgate, and then we're, the screenwriter and I were talking about this the other day. You know, I was principled still in some ways because, like, in the fraternity, it's an all-white fraternity, and it's in Denton, Texas, and, you know, and I want to rush a buddy of mine that plays football with me, named Ladarren McLean. He's a black guy, plays quarterback, and so Ladarren's my buddy, man. He's like my brother, and so I was like, hey, Ladarren, you want to come out and join my fraternity? He would come to the parties and stuff like that. He enjoyed the parties. And so I rushed Ladarren through, uh, I think it was the fall of 97. Yeah, fall of 97. Rushed Ladarren through the fraternity. And man, it opened my eyes to the world, the realities of the world. This was a crucible moment in the, in the fraternity and for me, because I had never understood the racism stuff because I grew up in this bubble of Port Arthur where, you know, it's giant melting pot. And there was racism that goes on in towns around me and stuff like that. And and you see it on the news, and but I never experienced it like that because I was the only white guy in the group growing up, or one of the only white guys. And now I'm in this room with all these white people, and I want to bring a black guy through. I mean, it was so heated. At one point, they were talking about throwing me out of the fraternity for even suggesting. Wow. Yeah. 
but I mean, I fought, fought them hard. I, you know, I lobbied a few guys to get with me on it and like, Hey, look, you know, basically it's almost like a threat to him. You, you know, you don't do this. It's not going to stay in this room. Put it that way. You, you don't like this. This guy's a great guy. You've all said that, but the only reason you don't want him in because he's black, just know that if you make that decision tonight, it's not staying in this room. That's going to spread out everywhere. I'll make sure of it. And they let him in, you know, they let him in. Uh, it, Drew a line in the sand with some of my attorney brothers and I that, that has never been mended to this day. And it, in the reality, in the end, Ladarian made it in, but he quit. He quit because, you know, just no one, you know, can you imagine being that guy? You know, you're going into this and, and you know, you're it's like he wanted to go back to the life when he just went to the parties. And it was fun back then because now he got this disdain, this this terrible, you know, treatment from so many people because of the color of his skin. And that was really the first time I saw that. So that that's still me in the college days when I'm a cocky, arrogant little jerk, you know, playing quarterback. And But I was still someone who, who was grounded to those Port Arthur ideals, those those principles I learned from my father and my mother. And, and that had to be very difficult then for you just because what we see in sports, which makes it so unique, uh, I think it probably is – parallel to what you're describing in terms of the melting pot in the community that you grew up in. I mean, that's the way sports is. It doesn't really matter the color of your skin now because it seems that through sports you can find acceptance, but obviously he wasn't able to find that type of same acceptance in the fraternity, which is crazy. It's an interesting dichotomy because, and you're right, sports is that, that level playing field. You got time for a Dabo story? I do, of course. Yeah, I'm a Clemson grad, so we'll always take Dabo's story. No way. It's right. Okay. <laughs> so look, man, Dabo, I'm in, I'm in Dabo's office, August of 19, and I'm getting ready to talk to the team. And so Dabo, we're talking about um, the stuff that happened whenever Trevor became the starting quarterback. He said all the media tried to make it out like it was a race thing when he when he, when he he benches the other quarterback and and how he, he said how it was so neat how the black players circled around Trevor and, and ushered that in and say, hey, nah, this guy's good with us and we're good to go. The coach made the right decision. He's playing the best guy. And uh, he told me something that day. He said, Damon, if we could bottle up what we have at Clemson here for four years while these men are here playing ball, if we could bottle it up and distribute it to everybody in America, we would fix the problem of racism in America. He said, because for four years, these men come here and, and they – they, they're next to people of all kinds of different races and, and religions and ethnicities. He said, so for four years, they don't know race. They don't know any of this. Other stuff. All they see is their brother, this brother that they, they go into battle with all the time. They bleed with it. They sweat with it. They fight with it. They love with. And for four years, they don't know anything about race. They're in this bubble where they love these other men next to them, no matter who they are. They don't understand. Race. But it's whenever they leave there, you know, that, that you can be, influenced by what goes on in this country. And he's like, man, if we could just bottle up what we get here in, a, in, a, in the sport, in the sports program, because sports does that sports unites people like that. You know, you're battling next to these people you love next to these people, you know, you go through stuff, you know, Davo said, some of these guys are going to be best men's in each other's weddings and stuff like that. And there are other races and you, see, you don't see that in other aspects of the country, but you see it in sports. And what's interesting, whenever Davo is going to speak at this Black Lives uh, Black Lives Matter rally, and Dabo has done everything he could to try to. Uh, but no matter what he says, it's not good enough. And so I'm at the gym, and I'm, and I'm just I'm watching something on TV. I think it was Paul Feinbaum running his mouth about it. And so I'm sitting there, and I'm watching this. I'm like, you know what? And so I start texting Dabo. I'm like, Dabo, you had a conversation with me last year about if you could bottle up the stuff. And you know, I said, do you remember that? He's texting back. Yeah, he's like, yeah, I remember that. I said, man, if you could articulate that for the rest of the country, what you told me that day, I said, Devil, I tell coaches everywhere I go about that conversation because I want coaches to emulate what you're doing there. And, man, I watched the next night while he was doing the Black Lives Matter rally, and he's speaking, and then he says, you know, if we could bottle up, we have it, Clemson. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God, man. But that's how humble and, and this guy is and how vulnerable this guy is. Devil, I'm in Nederland, Texas, this little town of about 17,000 in Texas, texting Dabo <laughs> from the gym you know, the day before. And Dabo is this – he's on this giant stage, man. He's got this huge platform in front of him. And he took some advice from a buddy of his in Nederland, Texas. I, I couldn't 
That's just Dabo, though. That is just Dabo. It is. That personifies Dabo Sweeney, without a doubt. And I know, uh, Damon, we could have a whole separate podcast uh, about race and all of that. But from your standpoint, because you've been in a unique situation where you have been fully integrated and seen the differences on the inside of prison, outside in the community. But how can we bottle that type of feelings up? And what can be done to continue or even fast forward to be able to get to a place where we can, as best as a society, view everybody as the same? Yeah, so that's a good question. Here's here's what I think. So definitions are important. Racism, in order for racism to exist, there has to be an imbalance of power. That's what racism is about, the imbalance of power. One side has more power than the other side. And, and in America, whites have that power. That's why it's hard for white people to understand or talk about racism is because for the most part, whites have never experienced racism. Now, when a white friend says, hey, that person of color was racist towards me, I, I stop them because here's the thing. Definitions are important. And I explain to them, you're not talking about racism. What you're talking about is prejudice. And prejudice means to prejudge. That's the root word of prejudice. And all racism can have prejudice against each other. That's not exclusively white. But racism is a white thing. So here's what I'm saying is that if it's something that people that look like you and me don't understand because we haven't experienced it. I mean, I have. You know, you alluded to that, but the prison thing. I mean, we're, we're whites are the, the minority in there. And so I couldn't sit on certain benches. I got my face kicked in because of the color of my skin. So I understand mm-hmm. systemic racism because I lived in an upside down world in prison where whites, you know, being white wasn't an advantage. You know, it was a disadvantage. So, you know. My thing is this, if you don't understand something because you've never experienced it, then you need to understand it from somebody that has. And so white people, people that look like you and me need to start listening to what black and brown people are saying about what goes on in this country. And that's when the conversation is going to start, when we come in and start listening. We we have to get off the sidelines and get in the game with the intent to win this thing, not just to get in the game with the intent to run the clock out to the protests and the riots stop. We need to say, hey, look, we're going to finally try to fix this now. That's what white people need to do. What black people need to do to make this happen is invite white people into these rooms with grace. And when I say you invite someone in with grace, that means no more of this cancel culture crap. I mean, you, you can't you can't expect someone white to want to jump into their conversation and say, hey, I'm going to risk everything I have in life, everything I've built. And I'm going to risk it all to help you. And if I say the wrong thing, then I lose it all. No. When I say black people need to invite white people into a room with grace, that means you invite someone into a room to have a conversation and you say, hey, you may not you may not say the right thing and you may not do the right thing, but you're willing to listen and learn that I'm willing to teach you. And if you mess up along the way, I'm going to help you out. We're going to help each other out. And that's the way it's going to happen. That's, you know, everybody's got their role to play. Look, I know that this was this is hundreds of years old and and, and blacks sim- simply were the victims of this for, for so long. And I, I get that. But. But now if we're going to talk about fixing this thing, then we've got to figure out how to do it. White people need to start listening and be serious about it. And black people have to invite white people into these conversations, educate them and do it with grace. man. no more of this cancel culture stuff, because here's the thing. White people don't do it, don't generally get involved with the race at a deeper level for two reasons. One, they don't understand it. Two, they're scared to death. of Rich, I mean, it's I've got this amazing platform to go around talking about it. But most white people. 99.9% of white people are not going to touch it like I do. But I've got this, this, this ability because of my backstory and fighting Nazis to be, to be where I am in prison, fighting black gangs to be able to stand on and be independent and move around and circulate with every race. So, But not everybody has that. So that's why I use my voice out there to go talk about that, because I want this conversation. I want that uncomfortable conversation started. How did you not get into some type of gang while you're in prison? How did you avoid that? My mom, you know, May 18th, 2009, when I was sentenced to life in prison, my mom and dad got five minutes with me afterwards. You know, I'm behind a bulletproof glass and my mom makes me promise. She said, promise me you will not get in one of these white hate groups, one of these Aryan Brotherhood type gangs because you're scared because you're the minority in there. She said, you were never racist. He race and you're not going to start now. And, And so she said, you come back as the man we raised or do not come back at all. Now, Rich, I'm going into prison with a life sentence. The worst part of the prison system on the life sentence building. There's no telling if I'm ever coming back. But she's telling me, if you want to come back, then you have to come back as the man we raised, or, or just don't even don't even bother with it. So I have this director from a mom, and then I have, you know, 
have no clue how to do this. I'm a white middle class guy. <laughs> exactly. I don't know anything about prison. Hell, I don't know anybody that's ever been to prison, right? <laughs> you know, because prisons, I mean, look, half the population in prison is made up of black men. And black men only make up six and a half percent of our population in this country. But they make up almost 50 percent of your prison population. And that's because there's more than one criminal justice system. Now, what's interesting is I went into prison with a life sentence and I made parole in seven years and three months and I got out. And and so I'll get this question a lot. You know, you're talking to a, a room, you know, it's 85 percent African-American and some a black guy will say, hey, you know, you made parole. That's great. Do you think you're the color of your skin? Do you think your race helped you with that? And the answer is absolutely. I mean, I. I do think that it played a role. Well, and then, but I would flip it around and say, "Hey, how many white guys do you hear about that get a life sentence for their first felony for nonviolent crime, where no one was ever hurt, no one was ever home? I got treated like a black person coming into the system, right? And I got treated, you know, they'll say like a white person coming out. But look, I understand the disparities in the system, and and I go around and trying to just shed light on that as much as I can because I. I understood inside that prison that if I became one of them, if I became one of these Aaron Brotherhood guys, if I get into that, that I lose myself completely in the process. And what happens when you go into prison is is the gangs pull you aside. You know, if you're white, they tell you, hey, the blacks are going to get you. They're going to rape you. They're going to do. And you know what? They're right. They're going to come after you and try to do that because the blacks are trying to get you to go to your game. Everything in that place is about race, man. And everybody, the status quo is to get with your own kind and stay there because that's where, you know, that's where you stop race riots from happening. Everybody gets in their own lane. But, man, I had to travel in my own lane outside of all that stuff. I could not be a part of that. And that is absolutely crazy. And even just then getting to prison and in your book, you detail all the partying you were doing and then got addicted to crystal meth and living on the streets in Dallas and started burglarizing houses. And that's what ultimately got you in prison. But during that whole time, as you're going through that, was there ever a sense, if you knew it then, or obviously you can reflect on it now, but was there a time that you knew inevitably it's coming down? This is a house of cards. There's no way I can continue my life like this. I mean, did you know that eventually your bad habits, it was going to catch up to you in terms of the cops. They were going to get you at some point. Yeah, there were, there were, there was a moment and it was a fleeting moment because it happened right after it, man. I'm, I'm, it's July 30th, 2008, man. I'm sitting there on this couch in my apartment, smoking meth with my meth deal. And I'm telling this guy, his name is Tex. I'm like, Hey Tex, dude, cops are about to get me, man. I mean, cause they just, they just got my partner in crime 10 days before they're putting the screws to this guy. I know it's a matter of time before they get to me. And you know, a little story that is not the change agent, but it's, we were talking about all the stuff for the script for the movie and it came out. My partner in crime, Dustin, had been arrested like on July 21st and he sent me a text that night. It was kind of cryptic. And he said, that, you know, you want to take his name off the, the property, the other property we had. I had a second apartment, the safe house, full of stolen stuff, you know, two bedroom, two bath, floor to ceiling, full of stolen stuff where everything was from the uptown burglaries. And it was in his name. The guy that leased the place was also another meth addict. And so, um, he sent me a cryptic text that night, my partner in crime, Dustin, and said, hey, man, take my name off that thing. And then I'm watching the news and the cops are perp walking him out of his place. And they're talking about we got one of the uptown, one of the uptown burglars. So I'm like, man, I know my time is up. And literally that night when I'm watching him come out and get him perp walk, I go down to the guy's house. It's the leasing agent that is on meth, too. And he's in the meth world. I'm like, hey, dude, we got to take Dustin's name off this lease. And he and, and I bring over a, a, the identity of one of the people I burglarized. it's an identity that's close enough to me. I'm like, put everything in this guy's name. And so we do, we put everything in that other guy's name, switch the lease over because I know what's happening next. And this is one of the reasons why these cops were, I mean, they were angry. I know they're coming with a search warrant for Dustin's name for that second place, because Dustin's had the, the lease agreement inside the glove compartment of a stolen car, which why he kept that. I have no idea, but I know Dustin has this thing. And so I go to Tony the guy that leases the, the apartments. And I said, hey, Tony, look, man, we got to take it out of Dustin's name. I give him a new name to put it under. I go buy a burner phone and register that burner phone and put that burner phone on that lease. Burner phone's never been used before. Never going to be used for anything else. Man, like a day later, that phone rings. It's like the next day, you know, that burner phone rings. I've got it with me. And it's a guy on the other end that says he's with the fire department. He's at my apartment and he uses the name of the person who the leases. And I'm not going to say the name because I don't want the victim 
so he says, hey, I'm here to check your fire, your, your sprinklers in your apartment. And I'm like, I don't need my sprinklers checked, you know? And, and he's like, well, can you just let us in so we can check it? We're doing a, a check. I know I'm talking to the lead detective right now, man. This is the guy that's after me. This is a cat and mouse game. And I'm like, no, dude, you can't. He's like, sir, I need to get in. I was like, listen, listen, man. I said, I'll be back in town in about a week. And when I get back in town in about a week, you can come in my apartment then, but not until then. Got it? And I hang up on him. I know they're running a trace on this thing. A couple of days later, man, I'm sitting there smoking meth with Tex on the couch. I'm telling Tex, Tex, it's coming down, man. I know it. Because, I mean, look, man, I just, I talked to the lead detective, man. And so, and just as I passed the pipe back to Tex, the window shattered on the right and tumbling across that little floor is that little canister and smoking on one end. And, I mean, it's like, literally, you asked if I knew there was a time. Yeah. It was set. It was you know when the first time I had ever voiced it, somebody was text, and it was seconds before it happened. But when I got off the phone with that detective saying he was with the fire department trying to get in that second place where there's over a million dollars worth of stolen property, I knew the walls are closing down. I, there was nothing I could do with that. Gosh, it had to just be an unbelievable feeling knowing that it, it's coming down. I mean, you you didn't have a place to run, so to speak. No, and, and in the meth world, in the drug world, in the crime world. Everybody around you knows it's going down. Why Tex would even show up and deliver dope to me? He was just trying to help me out, but he knew it was going down. Everybody, everybody separates themselves from you when that happens. Man, you're like a pariah, man. You're off on your own, and no one wants anything to do with you. And then whenever the cops come and they they bust down your door, and this all happened. This this happened to other people. I saw get get arrested. It happened to me, man. After that, you know, they leave your door hanging on the hinges. And every dope fiend, every scumbag from the criminal world that you were involved with comes in and steals everything out of your house. My house is getting burglarized now. My apartment, but it's okay. Who am I going to call and say, hey, look, I'm burglarizing my place. Oh, yeah, you're the uptown burglar? Sorry for your luck, you know. But and, and look, I'm not saying that. To, I, I own everything I've done, Rich. I, I made a ton of mistakes. I made a lot of victims. And what I do in life is I go out and I try to go out and change the trajectory of other people's lives. I bring, try to bring them hope. But it's like I had a conversation with my dad. We we're playing golf six, six months after I got out of prison. And I'm finally getting around to ask my dad, hey, dad, are you okay? I've never stopped to ask you, mom, are you okay? And my dad said, hey, it's like this, Damon. He said, if you can go out there and, and impact one kid's life, or change the trajectory of one kid's life, that he or she doesn't have to go down the road you went down with substance abuse and his or hers Parents don't have to be drugged through what you drug us through and the pain that we went through. And then you save his or her potential victims from ever becoming a reality. And you save those victims, right? Because you got through to one kid and you save the taxpayers from having to, to burden, to shoulder the burden of, of, you know, putting someone in prison like they had to do with you. He said, if you could find that one kid, it's all worth it. Go find that one kid. And so that's what my life has been about. Yeah, that's been your mission. Yeah. I, mean, I, I know I've made a ton of mistakes and I can't change that, but I can change life going forward. And that's what being a coffee bean is all about. OK, so talking about the the sentence that you get, basically a life sentence, 65 years, but you get paroled, as you mentioned, in seven years. And whenever I hear of somebody getting paroled, I, I always think of Shawshank Redemption and Morgan Freeman's character, you know, finally getting paroled. What is that process like? Because I mean, we see Morgan Freeman's character. I mean, he's so nice and trying to show that he's rehabilitated. And then finally, he's like, about to hell with it. It's almost like he's just very truthful and honest about who he is and what his life has been. How did you get paroled then after seven years, knowing that you basically had a life sentence? So the parole board came to, came to visit me. I was up for parole, which means I can make parole, but I don't expect to make parole. I've got zero expectations that day in 2015. So none whatsoever. You're like, none. this is not even going to happen. I figure I'm going to do 10 or 15 years because that's what you do in a life sentence. You do about 10 or 15. And that's that's the norm. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm getting into my stride. I'm in seven years. I'm getting into my stride of doing time. And this lady from parole, the meeting lasts a couple of minutes. I mean, a couple of minutes into the meeting, she closes up my file. She, and she says, Mr. West, look, I got to ask you, I, I'm here to ask you one question, basically. She said, if you could be remembered for being anything in this life, she said, give it to me in just one word, go. And she said, before you go, she said, just, she said, you had everything going on. She said, we don't see a lot of people like you, Mr. West. You had everything going for you in life. And you blew through all that. You became a drug addict. You became a criminal. Uh, you made a lot of victims. A jury gave you life in prison. 
But instead of coming to this prison, let that life sentence define you, you change yourself inside this. She said, as a matter of fact, you changed the entire prison around you. She said, so that's why I have to ask you, if you could be remembered for me anything, what would it be? Give it to me in one word. And man, it was the easiest question in the world to answer because that was where my, my life was then, the same place it is now. And I, and I gave her her answer quickly. And I said, useful, ma'am. I just want to be useful. And I can be useful in this prison or I can be useful out in that world, you know, helping other people out. And that's when they, they let me go. We're going to give you one shot. You know, November 16, 2015, I walk out of prison with this one shot to get it right. Now I'm on parole the rest of my life, which means every month I check in with my parole officer and I, I pay my 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 monthly fine and you know I pee in a cup every time I get a travel permit to travel mm-hmm. outside the state of Texas. But but you know the Morgan Freeman character that you're talking about is the reality for for a lot of people. You get out and there's limited options to help you out out here. I mean, look, we talk about you know we want to be a nation of second chance. I I talk to people that are Christian a lot. You know that that talk about forgiveness and all that. That forgiveness thing is is something serious though, man, because forgiveness is a two way street. It means that you want to be forgiven, and that's a given. Man, you want—I want to be forgiven for things, that, but you have to be able to forgive everybody for everything they do, one hundred percent of the time, especially the ones that don't ask for it. And that's the hardest thing to do. Yeah, it's it's difficult. And that's why I've got to have a conscious contact with Jesus to do mine because I I can't do it on my own. I can't I can't just voluntarily just go out and forgive you. I like to hold on to my, my resentments, Rich. I love my resentments, but I gotta. But I know that a resentment is the worst thing in the world for a guy that's an addict in recovery. A resentment will send me back out. <laughs> To drinking or doing drugs because all that hate that you keep inside you, man, and that hate corrodes the container it's contained in. And the opposite of resentment is forgiveness. And so I have to find ways to do that. And I think this country needs to have a serious moral conversation with itself about how we handle formerly incarcerated people. Do are we really serious about this term second chances that we keep throwing out? Because if we are, then we need to start preparing these people better while they're in prison. And when they get out, we need to make more jobs and opportunities available to them because it's not easy when you get out of prison. It's very difficult. I had all the advantages in the world and there were still tough days for me, not bad days, but tough days. So that word institutionalized, that's real. Oh yeah. It's real with both the inmates and the the staff because the staff and the correctional officers are there 12 hours a day working their 12 hour shifts, four days a week. So they're getting institutionalized too. Institutionalization doesn't just happen on one side of it. It happens on both sides. Now, today, I'm a professor at the University of Houston. I teach a class called Prisons in America. I went back and got my master's when I got out of prison. So I've got correctional officers in my class. I've got cops. I've got FBI agents. I mean, I've got all these different people from all these different walks of life. And the thing about it is, is that I don't have FBI agents, aspiring FBI agents. I'm sorry. Let me back that up. But but the thing about it is, is that I get to teach the next generation of criminal justice practitioners about what really goes on. Because it's not something you're going to get out of a textbook. But every now and then, you know, the right person comes along to go through the system that can come out and articulate what they saw and maybe make recommendations to how we can do better. And I feel like I'm that right guy. You know, I feel like they locked up the right guy. Wow. Uh, that's, that's, that's powerful just to be able to, again, just your, what your experience has been. I mean, you can not only empathize, I mean, you can sympathize, you know, all of that because uh, of that experience. The day you get out, though, walking out of prison on parole, what was the first thing you did? Well, you know, you walk out and it's a trick of the mind. It has to be because when I got on the other side of the gate, the, the, the grass was greener, the sky was bluer, the air was lighter. Everything felt different. It's like this tremendous weight is lifted off, right? It's like going through a portal. And, you know, you go through it and, and man, I see my parents across the parking lot, I run over there and hug them. It's very emotional, as you can imagine. You know, I'm free after, you know, seven years and three months and 18 days of captivity of something I did. I put myself in there, but now I'm free. I'm back with my my family on the other side of the gate. And the first thing I did, Rich, was go to Whataburger. <laughs> and I got my number two with cheese, man, with a, with a fresh shake. And it was so good. But no, I honestly, but. Really, I mean, that's the comic relief part of that day. But the first thing I did was go to a recovery meeting, an AA meeting in my hometown, the home group. I went it's still the same home group I go to now. And I walked in the room and said, my name is Damon West. I just walked out of prison on parole for the rest of my life on my life sentence. I'm an addict and a recovering alcoholic and I need a sponsor. And that's what I did. I got a sponsor. I started working a program recovery and I never 
will stop because if I stop working my program recovery, I go back. To- Who was the first person that you told the coffee bean story to after you had heard it and it started impacting your life? Who, who was or the first time you were able to really convey that message to somebody? It was my cellmate, Carlos, when I because I got the coffee bean message from a guy in Dallas County Jail, Mr. Jackson. You know, he's telling me about prison being a pot of boiling water. And, you know, you put, you know, you put a carrot in a pot of boiling water, it turns soft. And then you put an egg in a pot of boiling water, it turns hard. And but you put a coffee bean in a pot of boiling water, it changes the water to coffee. And that's what he's telling me about. Some people go to prison, they get soft and beat down and, and you don't want to be the egg. You know, you want, you, I mean, you don't want to be the carrot. Or the egg either. I mean, the egg turns hard. You know, eggs become institutionalized and the egg is what you find more of, too, in prison. He said, but the coffee bean is a rare thing because it changed the water to coffee. And the coffee bean is that positive person that changes their environment. And so I've got this and I go to prison. And the first guy I tell it to is my my cellmate. And when I first get to prison, it's a guy named Carlos, a little Hispanic guy from San Antonio, a little bank robber from San Antonio, serving life. And Carlos, you know, He's real excited about the coffee bean, but he tells me, he said, you'll never be a coffee bean with the way you think. He said, you have to change the way you think if you want to change the way you act. He said, because all action is born of thought and thoughts without action. And he pointed down the day room. He said, the day room is full of people that have thoughts without action. You don't want to be one of them. He said, if you want to become that coffee bean, you have to stop looking at prison as a punishment and start looking at prison as an opportunity. And I mean, I look at this guy like he has a second head. Man, we're serving life in a maximum security prison in Texas. On the life sentence building, the worst. I mean, you're as low as you can get in society. And this guy thinks this is an opportunity, right? I'm like, man, how do you? He said, because you're never going to get a chance to work on yourself like this 24 hours a day, seven days a week. What are you prepared to do with this opportunity? He refused to call it a punishment. And that changed my mindset. But that was the first person I got to share it with. He was moved by it. He loved the coffee bean story, but but he had to add in that you're not going to be a coffee bean the way you are. He was a student enough to understand. Wow. So yeah, first yeah. Guy. And then did you continue sharing that message with other inmates at that time? Absolutely, man. You know, it's funny because I go in my old prison, you know, the Styles unit, which I, I live four miles away from the Styles unit. So I get to go in there all the time, not during coronavirus, but before that. And man, these guys in there that knew me, they're like, man, you said you would come back and you did, man. You are still being that coffee bean. And I would, and I'll remind them and say, Hey man, how many guys in here, I'll be in the chapel talking to 200 inmates. I'm like, how many guys in here remember me talking about the coffee bean? And I mean, all these hands are up because I went around telling people about that. And what's cool is I get to go back into prisons now and they put up murals in these Texas prisons that say, are you being a coffee bean? And there's a picture of a coffee bean on the wall. And that mural rich will be there in 40 years. When we're long gone from this earth, one inmate will walk by that mural with another inmate Say, hey man, what's up with that? What does that mean? <laughs> exactly. It's going to be, oh, this is a story about the carrot, the egg, and the coffee. Yeah. Here, check it out. That's how it's passed on. Well, and, and I think the other thing is because uh, when I read the coffee bean, Damon, I, I was absolutely blown away. And I, I think the other thing that is, is so impactful, again, how much I loved the coffee bean, but it's how can you get the message delivered to people earlier in life? And, you know, so they have that opportunity. And that's why I love that you've got the children's book. So talk about how that came about and why put it into a a cartoon perspective like that just for kids. Uh, because I, I, what John and I felt like kids need this message too. And that was the, the only drawback to what we did with the coffee bean is like elementary school kids. They, they want you to come in and share the story of the coffee bean. You can't. I could read the first 39 pages of the original coffee bean. But I was like, John, we need a book. We need a coffee. We need a kid's book. Because if you can get into a child's mind, this mindset of being a coffee bean, being a positive force for change, that the outside influences have no impact on you. It's what's in you, like, like the coffee bean. Kids understand that. And if they can get a belief system set up at a young age, then who knows how they can go through life and handle situations that are tough. And 2020 has been as tough as it can get. And so we thought that, hey, the time is right to get this message in the kids' hands and get it in the teacher's hands to teach them. Because it, it's one of those things, you know, the kids make up rules in the coffee bean club. You're, so you're hitting them with this, like almost like this, this drip, drip, drip of being a coffee bean throughout the book. And, and, you know, I just think it's so important for our youth to understand that message that the power is inside them, not on the outside world around them. 100%. And then so wrapping up here, Damon, how did sports 
help you through your tough times and impact, you know, the ability to overcome all of the adversity that you were facing? Yeah, sports has given me a lot of lessons in life, but it, one of the things sports has taught me is, is to be a team player. And that's one of the biggest lessons I've learned from sports and from life is that we're part of something bigger, part of something greater. And that to be a successful team, you have to be able to communicate. You have to be able to bond. you, And to do that, you have to be vulnerable. So, see, there's a lot of things you learn from, especially you're playing quarterback. You know, you're a leader of an entire unit. You're the field general. You're out there. How do you get these, you know, other 10 people on the field to, to buy into you? And it's, you, you know, Sports teaches you about your work ethic. You know, you're putting in the work to, to be better. And and um, I don't know, I, I think, you know, just learning to be selfless and be part of something bigger is one of the best lessons sports has ever taught. Yes, without a doubt. And last question then, Damon, you mentioned the movie about your life, which is absolutely fantastic. And are you going to try to convince Matthew McConaughey to play you in the movie? <laughs> Man, I would love to have Matthew McConaughey play me. That would be really cool, man. He's a Texas guy. So cool. Yes, exactly. Right? We're trying. It's going to be like a Netflix limited series type deal. So, you know, we'll sell it to Netflix, HBO, Hulu, whoever buys it. But you won't have to leave your home. And it's going to be 10, 10 episodes. And that may just be the first season. Who knows? There may be multiple seasons of this thing. So we'll see. That's all on God's line, man. I'll That's right. Day, brother. I love it. Well, Damon, thank you again so much. Greatly appreciate it. And it's been an honor having you a guest here on the podcast. Hey, Rich, the, the honor is mine, man. Thank you for sharing your time with me today. There's no doubt that we can all look at a coffee bean in a completely different manner now after hearing not only the message of the coffee bean, but also Damon's journey. From having it all to losing everything, well, almost everything, he didn't lose the ability to see the beauty of the coffee bean message and apply that to his life by not letting his environment change him, but to do just the opposite and be useful to help change the environment with one simple mindset. Be a coffee bean. Now that finishes episode 148, and you can also watch some of our episodes by visiting our Rich Take on Sports YouTube channel. And remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Takes Sports. Thanks for listening.